This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. The biotech and pharma space, it has been pretty active of late, to say the least, Uh, Carol. It's been amazing to watch. And obviously, so much focus on vaccines and therapeutics and so much more. And that's certainly spurring some of the action. Let's get into it. Understand what are the most important deals? What are the most important things to be thinking about from an investment standpoint specifically? Brian Scorney joins us. He is Senior Biotech and Pharma Analyst for Baird. Joining us on the phone from New York City. All right, Brian, we turn to you to separate the signal from the noise, as it were. What's the most important thing you're watching? today. Hey, good afternoon, Carol and Jason. Thanks so much. So, so you know, I mean, today we're looking at this big acquisition that Gilead did um, for a, a very early commercial stage biotech company called Immunomedics. And, and this is really the phone strategy that Gilead's kind of laid out um, that they want to be a big player in oncology. Uh, and they're certainly paying their way way to do that you know it's interesting i mean the last few mondays that uh there's been trading we've seen a, a pretty sizable merger in the biotech space mm-hmm. um you know if if there was if there wasn't a labor day last monday got to wonder if there there would have been uh something but uh you know before before labor day we had a, a company called principia acquired by sanofi for a multiple sclerosis drug before that we had a company um called amune acquired uh by nestle for a uh, also a uh, immunology drug to treat peanut so you know we've certainly seeing some some meaningful consolidation in the space and, and look that shouldn't be surprising given the cash flows that these large pharmaceutical companies have and uh you know what really are lifetime low interest rates so i think m a will continue uh to be a theme here for the foreseeable future. You know what's really cool, Brian, is you mentioned Gilead Sciences. So that was Immunomedics, $21 billion. It's cancer-focused. Merck is also planning to take an equity stake, pay as much as about $4.5 billion in a series of deals with Seattle Genetics for two of its cancer drugs. So we're seeing there's so much focus on COVID, understandably, and treatments and a vaccine. But meantime, other companies are, are like, okay, we're moving ahead on our focuses and doing what we need to do to kind of cement our positions going forward. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's notable that, that none of these big deals over the last few weeks have been um, specifically for COVID. You know, I think a lot of the COVID players are, are in their positions and, you know, they've sort of done done deals um, with the government. Uh, but I think, you know, people in the sector are, are a little skeptical of sort of the durability of revenues that can come from any sort of COVID treatment or vaccine. Mm-hmm. So, while, you know, I think everyone in the sector is very excited to, to get something to help us get over um, what's clearly a, been a, a major blow to the economy. Um, and, and life as we know it, um, you know, I think I think people see that at some point we'll have a vaccine, at some point we'll have a therapeutic, and and really the you know the, the business is going to remain focus on on what it's always been looking at, and that is sort of pushing kind of to the 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 next innovation, and and that's what these deals are really about. And so just sticking with COVID, if we can for a minute, Brian. I mean, how do you sort of assess, as it were, because we're looking at this as human beings, as parents, as kids, as all of that. But from an investment perspective, we do see investors and markets reacting uh, 
pretty um, emphatically one way or the other, depending on a headline mm-hmm. about a phase three trial or, or whatever. How do you sort of keep your wits about you? or How do we keep our wits about us as we see all the, these gyrations? I think, it, I think it's really hard. You know, I mean, I, since, since the beginning and, and since a lot of the hype we've seen, I, I've, been, I've been pretty cautious. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that expectations should be tempered. Um, you know, I think at, for multiple reasons, I think, um, you know, this is, this is a disease that is, is going to be addressable with therapeutic. And, and it'll probably be addressable to some extent with a vaccine as, as well. Um, you know, I think expectations have a tendency in the sector to get ahead of themselves normally. I think in this sort of situation where people are so desperate for um, something to help, I think you've seen expectations get way, way ahead of themselves. And right, Gilead, you know, has a big deal today, but they've sort of the poster child earlier this year. We've seen their stock um, really rip higher and outperform. Remdesivir, right? On remdesivir, yeah, and and then you've basically seen until now Gilead sell off every single day after remdesivir's uh, approval, and I think you know I think that sort of uh, is a microcosm of, of what drug development in the sector can be like, and what investing in the sector can. Brian, be Brian, like. are there any names as a result of maybe today's deals, or just in general that you're watching that you anticipate could be taken out or be on the hunt for snapping up another company? So, you know, I, I think, as always, what people will get really excited about is drugs that, that really work, drugs that show a meaningful effect. And, and we've seen time and time again, you have a lot of pricing power and, and margin capability with drugs that really, really move the needle. Um, you know, oncology has been a huge part of that sector because we've really come to a level of maturity in our understanding of the genetics of oncology um, that we've really been pushing the needle across a number of different cancer indications. And, and, you know, we've really seen that through the large cap worlds of, uh, of Merck and Bristol um, and their PD-1 drugs um, to, you know, what we're seeing today in, in sort of these antibody drug conjugates like immunomedics, like um, Seattle Genetics. Um, so, you know, I think, I think looking for clinical data that really justifies a, a needle move in the clinic is, is the most important thing to, to kind of assess a long thesis in the sector. And that isn't limited to oncology. I mean, there's a number of names that I look at. Sarepta is one of my favorite names for the year. Uh, I think they have a very, very meaningful gene therapy, which is, you know, ultimately uh, hope, hope to provide a cure for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I think if that, if that data um, comes in as good as I, I, I think it will, I think right. it really is a transformational data point that will really move the stock higher. All right, Brian Scorney, really good to catch up with you on such a busy day. Great analysis, senior biotech and pharma analyst for Baird. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's get into TikTok because the kids are all talking about it. Uh, they want to make sure that they can keep ticking and talking. The grown-ups are all talking about it. The grown-ups are all talking about it. Major superpower governments are talking about it. Everyone's talking about it. So thank goodness for us, we have Shelly Banjo. She's been covering this, a senior writer for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from New York City. All right, Shelly, so what do we know? So much drama, but where do we stand right now uh, here on a Monday afternoon with Oracle? and TikTok. So much drama. Um, so really, the, the <laughs> ball is now in uh, the Trump administration's court, because what we have now is ByteDance saying to the Trump administration, um, you know, we've gone through these different bids. We rejected uh, Microsoft's bid. We decided to go with this proposal from Oracle, and we're going to hand it over to the Trump administration for approval. And now this turns over to um, a committee that 
that deals with national security concerns um, called CFIUS. And mm-hmm. what they have to do is come up with a recommendation and hand that over to Trump. And then ultimately, it would be um, Trump's decision, at least in the U.S., to go forward. And then any type of um, transaction would also need to have at some point the blessing of the Chinese government. So I'm curious, in terms of getting this deal done, Shelley, was it just financial terms or was it the right combination, the right combination uh, when they knock on Washington's doors? What was it? The thing that tipped Oracle over the edge was the fact that they're really catering to ByteDance um, and giving mm. TikTok's parent what they want, whereas Microsoft was really catering to the U.S. government and trying to give the U.S. government, the Trump administration, what they at least said uh, they wanted or at least outlined what they wanted in in executive orders. So what what the Trump administration said initially they wanted was an outright sale uh, to an American company who would, you know, have a clean break um, altogether with dance. This is a completely different deal. This is not a not a uh, total break with ByteDance. This is, we're going into business with ByteDance. This will now be more of a joint venture type of restructuring where Oracle's just a partner of ByteDance. And so it's really unclear if all of this is going to pass muster in Washington. Exactly. Well, and right? to that point, Shelley, I mean, as you know better than I do, we've been throwing a, a huge, talented team, including yourself at this, because there's so many aspects to this. What are you hearing from your sources and what are your colleagues hearing in terms of that Washington piece, because presumably the Trump administration, they won a victory here. And I guess it depends on how you can declare victory here. Right. I mean, it's it's all going to be about spin and it's all going to be about, you know, who is going to decide who's going to convince Trump that it's a victory for him and is that Mm going to be enough? So we saw Steve Mnuchin come on early morning on TV explaining, you know, we got this, you know, this was a this is incredibly unprecedented for uh, someone in the administration to come out publicly talking about a national security review um, so detailed. And, you know, he said he confirmed that he got a proposal over the weekend and that they're going to go, you know, looking through this, but they have tremendous amounts of confidence in Oracle. And so, um, you know, that in itself is unprecedented, but at the same time, you know, they have to go through this and address, does this really address national security concerns? And if it doesn't, then they're going to have to answer to that um, to that group of you know people in the administration who are really focused on that. I have to say, for something that they're so concerned about security, this deal to me says that there are more potential holes and political conflicts versus the Microsoft potential offer. Yeah, I mean, you could say you could you could see how this can be viewed as a win on all sides. ByteDance keeps this prized asset, TikTok. TikTok users, the teens you mentioned, are happy because it's still going on. Uh, Trump looks good. Oracle looks good. They saved this company, and you know, Trump can get to say that he was like, you know, being hard on on China. But if you really care about the national security concerns, a lot of this stuff doesn't really add up. And so the question now is you know, who's really in the driver's seat and um, what kind of decisions are going to be made in Washington and then brought back to TikTok. Shelley, very quickly, 30 seconds. Walmart still working on something? Just quickly. I think Walmart wants to be working on something. It's unclear if they are really going to be, you know, kept in the fold or not. All right. Great reporting. Shelley Banjo, thank you so much. Senior writer, Bloomberg 
Joining us on the phone from New York City, part of a massive Bloomberg team across the world who yeah. are chasing down every twist and turn. And there have been a lot of them, Carol, in terms of this one. And some unexpected names, some names behind the scenes, some politics, some regulators, and Cepheus. I love Cepheus. I love Cepheus, too. Um, and the term's still being, you know, term's still evolving. So it's totally. not like it's a done deal yet. So this has been kind of par for the course when it comes to TikTok uh, and its U.S. operations. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. This is a great story. It will be featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's about the Swedish automaker Volvo, which is really, as it's written in this story, a poster child for how globally interconnected the auto industry became in an era of increasing free trade. And then... The U.S.-China trade war happened. Talk about timing. Uh, Let's get into this story. It reminds us once again about the highly connected and complicated world that is the global auto market. Bloomberg News auto reporter Gabby Coppola on the phone from our Detroit bureau, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the phone in Massachusetts. So, you know, Joel, you put out plans as a global automaker, and then things like trade wars happen. Yeah, and it doesn't get much more global than Volvo, yeah. um, which we've we've written about um, a lot actually in the pages of Business Week before. You know, this is a Swedish car maker owned by a Chinese billionaire, and as we've written about before, they opened uh, a, an auto plant in South Carolina and imported were importing parts from Mexico to make those cars and then they were going to export some of those cars to go to China. Uh so that's about as global as you can make it except that you know during the trade war uh the wind started to shift a little bit and now Volvo is announcing that the cars that were going to otherwise be exported will actually be sold in America to Americans. Gabby this is a little bit. I just described something that's rather head spinning. But what, is, what does that all mean? Um, and, and how much did the trade war really come into bear in the company's strategic uh, redirection here? I mean, I think it was huge. Um, I think that you know when Volvo part, uh, planned this plant, um, announced it in around 2015, they thought you know we're coming back, uh, we're growing, want to be in the U.S. It's a major U.S. auto market. And uh, within a few months of them break, um, opening the plant, the trade war started. And they basically had to rip up uh, their production plans. It cost them money. And that was, you know, just part of the set, one of the setbacks they suffered. They also, as their inaugural um, car, they had a sedan when the entire U.S. has gone crazy for SUVs. So <laughs> all of their plans were kind of, uh, you know, their plans kind of imploded in the beginning there. Yeah, but... As far as what does it mean, I think it's just like they're a car company that's being forced to adapt to this new normal of more constrained um, trade and, you know, more sort of nationalist trade barriers. Well, and Gabby, it's interesting, too, because one of the things you know as well, certainly better than, than we do, is that, you know, car making's complicated. You can't just sort of turn it on and turn it off and, and, and things don't, I guess, turn on a dime as it were, just to use a little bit of a car uh, metaphor there. So how much of what's going on now has sort of down the line repercussions, especially as we think about an ever evolving uh, sort of trade landscape? Well, I think, I mean, like the CEO of uh, Volvo said himself in our story that this is, I, he is not betting on any changes anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, we specifically asked him, oh, well, do you think, you know, if uh, Joe Biden were to become president, things would change? 
And he said, not really, you know, and that was every expert I spoke to in this story. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's so politically untenable for a um, for any politician to say, let's take the tariffs off Chinese cars. Like China has become is and has become in the American consciousness such a boogeyman of, you know, destroying American jobs and things like that, that uh, it's not tenable, I think, to, to go back. At least that's what they're saying, telling me. So, Gabby, how how important is the North American market in general to Volvo? I mean, like w- w- one specific thing is like we're talking sedans here because the SUVs there that are being made there are already actually going to Americans. So, it, does the U.S. start to look like a, a growth opportunity for Volvo here? What, what does that look like as part of their portfolio? I think it still is a big growth opportunity for Volvo because their market share of the premium uh, vehicle market is still pretty small, so they have a lot of room to grow. Um, and so they're going to bring their SUV, their very successful SUV, um, it's called the XC90. They had been, already been exporting it to the U.S. from Europe, um, and they're going to start building um, the next version of that in 2023. And then I think they will be able to kind of make good on their dreams of really you know, having local plant in the U.S., Sell, basically selling the cars you're making in the U.S. Of course, they'll still have some imports, but um, they'll get a lot more volume, I think, out of that XC90. But net-net, I mean, Gabby, he doesn't, the CEO of Volvo, doesn't regret the investments he's made in the U.S., and he thinks it still makes sense longer term, despite kind of the macro environment, certainly the trade environment, changing. I think so. I think, you know, I've talked to a lot of um, kind of analyst experts about this, and you have to think that the auto industry, you know, it's such a long-term view to plan, invest. These are, you know, this plant costs of $1.1 billion dollars. Uh, when you do something like that, you're not just going to flip because somebody else becomes president. You're thinking about the long term. And in the long term, the U.S. is the second largest um, auto market in the world after China. Um, you need to be here if you want to be a global automaker. And, and, you know, Volvo certainly has those ambitions. Um, you know, not just being in Europe, but they have a very strong presence in China now because of their owner. And they want to come back and be in the U.S. And of course, you know, Volvo station wagons are an iconic vehicle for generations of Americans. And um, now they're kind of reinventing themselves as, you know, being super green with their electric, electric right. cars. And um, they've got a lot of um, their serious investments in autonomous vehicle technology and adding those features to their cars. So I think the U.S. is a very important piece of that. Well, let's actually talk about that because the autonomous part, um, they, they push back a little bit, right? Like, and how important um, is the U.S. role going to be for electric in, in this? Is that South Carolina factory capable of doing what they want on the electric front? It will be, yes. They, um, they um, are going to have a battery cell assembly um, facility adjacent to the plant. Um, the, Volvo, especially in the premium market, I think that they believe that their customer base, um, it, you know, those are people who might buy a Tesla or an Audi e-tron or something. They believe there is a market for electric vehicles here. Um, and again, I mean, the thing is, we look at the U.S., but we have to think globally. These are yeah. It's still global automakers, globalized economy. Uh, Europe is just continues to tighten their emissions regulations. China has declared you know, let new energy vehicles a strategic priority for the nation. So automakers have to invest in this stuff in order to survive globally. Yeah. And so, gosh darn it, they're going to find a market for it in the U.S. too, or die trying. You know? Yeah, <laughs> so that's, that's for sure. It. It, yeah, and anecdotally, it feels like that's certainly uh, picking up and 
certainly uh, Mr. Musk would say that if you asked him. All right, Gabby Coppola, great to hear from you. Auto reporter for Bloomberg joining us on the phone from our Detroit bureau. Check out her story online and at businessweek.com in the Bloomberg terminal. Of course, Volvo's trade war solve is selling U.S. made cars to Americans. Go figure. Our thanks as well to Joel Weber. Yeah, totally. And I mean, what I like about it is just a reminder of, you know, how global auto production (sighs) is and, you know, based here, manufacturing here, but selling to here, it can all be in completely different countries and trade wars and a pushback on globalization makes this all so much more difficult. Well, and I also think about all the investments uh, that the big automakers have made down south. I say that as a southerner, having seen South Carolina, Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia all really uh, attract a lot of those automakers. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So if you're looking for cues about how the economy is doing or will do, you can look at a lot of things, right, Jason? You can look at trade, trade tensions, financial markets, deal flow, politics. So in today's Business Week Economics, we've got a favorite guest of ours uh, who understands really all of this and how it intersects and comes together in the impact. Stefan Selig is back with us, managing partner, Bridge Park Advisors, former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade at the U.S. Department of Commerce during the Obama administration. He's joining us on the phone from Bridgehampton. Stefan, it's so good to have you here with us. Um, we kind of even don't even know where to start because there's so much uh, going on. First of all, how are you? I am fine. All are healthy, and I hope uh, the same for your family, Carol and Jason. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, we are, and thank you. And I'm glad to hear that uh, we are about your family as well. Um, so what do you think is the most important on a day like today? The news flow does not stop. There is so much deal flow. We're watching, you know, U.S.-China economic ties continuing to be scaled back. Uh, there's tension still about TikTok, even though it looks like a deal is happening. What is it that catches your attention on a morning like today? Well, I guess I would say, Carol, um, you know, continued uncertainty and volatility on the one hand, certainly from a macroeconomic perspective, from a health perspective, uh, and from uh, a geopolitical perspective, especially as it relates to our relationship with China on the one hand. On the other hand, I think the deal market is telling you that uh, people are a little bit less nervous than they were a number of months ago and are no longer going to sit on the sidelines, and they are going to act and move strategically, even in this environment of uncertainty. So let's talk a little bit more about that, Stefan, because as we were talking about you, your ears were burning this morning, I'm sure, as we were lauding you on our planning call and thinking about all the different things we wanted to ask you. I mean, you've been doing deals for probably longer than than you care to admit. You've seen a lot of cycles. You've seen a lot of boardrooms deal with all sorts of uncertainty. It felt like there was a pause over the summer. What was the catalyst for getting everything going again, or was it just all in good time? Well, I think you obviously had um, uh, pent-up demand and a backlog. This is, you point out, Jason, people were sitting on the sidelines for a number of months, one. Two is interest rates remain at um, uh, all-time lows, so money is very cheap. And thirdly, um, for the most part, stocks have rebounded, and we all know that there's nothing that gives companies and boards more confidence than looking at a share price um, uh, that looks uh, strong. All of that against a backdrop of uncertain economic growth, and as a result of that, companies needing to look externally to drive growth as opposed to purely creating it organically. 
So do you expect this to continue, Stefan? I'm curious what you're seeing. You're out there in the Hamptons. Um, I don't know what kind of conversations, you know, you're having with folks maybe on the weekend. I mean, already we're looking at $69 billion worth of deals. Um, it's the highest tally for the start of a week since late November 2019. So does this continue? You know, certainly in certain sectors. So I think in the healthcare sector, you'll, con- you'll continue to see a lot of uh, transactional activity. Um, but there are going to be some sectors um, that largely uh, remain on the sidelines because of fundamental issues impacting those sectors, you know, in the consumer retail uh, space, in travel and leisure. I think you will see less deal activity in those areas. Wait, can we ask you about one that kind of has blown our mind? And that is the possibility of, is it Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse? Which is it, the two? UBS. 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 Forgive me. UBS and Credit Suisse. Is that, I mean, I don't know. How do you get your head around that? Well, first of all, I'm surprised it would kind of blow your mind, Carol, because this is something that has been been discussed for well over a decade. Um, You have two Swiss banks in a market that, you know, clearly doesn't need to have more than one. Right. And given the importance of wealth management and banking to the Swiss economy, I think there is a compelling rationale to have a national champion. And Mm. so as a result, creating a combination of these two firms to create somebody, a a firm with more financial heft, with greater scope and scale, makes a ton of sense, and it's made a ton of sense for well over a decade. That being said, the dislocations about a a potential transaction are significant which is to say, while there are going to be huge synergies that will be created in this combination, there would also be massive layoffs, probably mm. more than 15,000 people wow. in the Swiss market. And as a result of that, you know, the political component of a transaction like this happening was always the thing that kept it from, um, kept it from uh, making progress. But potentially now, given the uncertainty in the global economy and the fallout from COVID, there may be enough um, uh, enthusiasm and will to make something happen that made a ton of economic sense for a long period of time. Well, that's what I think I maybe, you know, is why now? But And you're kind of seeing that, right, among a lot of industries, whether it's retail that's been beaten up for years, a long time, and some companies finally going bankrupt. I mean, it's, it's, I do feel like there's something about this environment that's finally making things that maybe needed to happen for a long time happen. Well, you know, there are two reasons why um, deals get done. One are offensive reasons where companies are looking uh, to grow in new areas. The other clearly are defensive reasons. Mm. And I think in the case of UBS, CS, as well as in a number of other industries, there are going to be compelling defensive reasons to do deals now where they may not have felt forced to do them in the past. Let's get right back to our conversation with Stefan Selig, Managing Partner for Bridge Park Advisors, former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade at the U.S. Department of Commerce during the Obama administration. So want to talk China, but the interesting thing, Stefan, is the most interesting thing potentially going on around China right now is, in fact, a deal, which is this deal for TikTok. As you look at this, and you've dealt with some complex deals over your time, this one has a lot of hair, as they say, <laughs> and I just wonder what you make of it and where it stands now and where it may end up. Well, look, Jason, I think the complexity on the TikTok situation among some of these other deals that involve China 
largely revolves around kind of the ambiguity about some of the administration's positions on these topics. And as a result of that, I think people are kind of feeling um, their way as they go uh, to see what might work and what might not work um, to satisfy the administration's requirements. But I think, frankly, it's, it's a reflection of a level of complexity and uncertainty that is going to exist for some period of time now, regardless of who wins the election. Mm. Um, that we're living in a world um, that has moved from uh, a relationship with China where both sides have considered it to be mutually beneficial to one that is now characterized by mutual suspicion, uh, antagonism, and hostility. And I think regardless of who wins the election, uh, that is likely to continue for some period of time. And it makes, I mean, we've talked about this with you a lot, Stefan, you know, over the last couple of years or, or, or last couple of months for that matter. Um, does it make sense, that level of suspicion? Well, um, it makes sense in the context, Carol, that um, what we've talked about is we made a deal or the West made a deal 20 years ago when mm-hmm. China joined the WTO that if we let them into our system, they would fundamentally reform their uh, economy and form of government and become a responsible stakeholder uh, in that system. And especially, especially since President Xi um, has, uh, has um, become the leader of that country, that is becoming increasingly less likely. And as a result of that, um, I think we have to now set up a system that recognizes that reality. And I think the president and the current administration are quite right in, in suggesting that we need to reset that relationship. The question is, how are we going to do that that helps American workers and businesses? What do you think we should do to yeah. reset it? Well, um, first of all, let me tell you what I think I don't think is going to happen. There's been a lot of discussion about decoupling mm-hmm. from China. Uh, a word that the president um, has used in the last uh, week or two. I think that's going to be extraordinarily difficult, Jason. I, mean, I think when you know you and I think of decoupling, we think of two um, you know rail cars on a train where you can just quite simply um, have them separate from each other. But given how complex the supply chains are, that separation, if it were to happen, is going to be um, uh, quite protracted. And there's going to be some real fallout. If you look at the size of the Chinese economy, but in particular, how much of of world production they account for in a number of industries, and that's everything from tablets to smartphones uh, to furniture to small electrical appliances, amongst other things, we are not going to be able to separate from China. And this notion that we can kind of exist in some sort of Cold War, War framework, I think, is unrealistic. We did not trade or have anything like the economic, let alone cultural, connection to the USSR that we do with China. And as a result of that, I think it's going to be a long and slow process, even if we were going to decouple. What are the market implications of that? What are the economic implications of that, certainly for the United States, Stefan? Well, um, what it means is folks are now starting to think about their supply chains Mm -hmm. and move towards geographies that have less political risk. And so that's going to be moving away from China to Thailand, Vietnam, Mexico, India, amongst other places where they where they uh, can feel like they're not taking the sort of political risk uh, that exists today um, uh, going forward. So. 
last minute or so here, Stefan, we were talking uh, just a few minutes ago about Gary Cohn, who I know you know well from Wall Street days and, and others, you know, essentially saying he's going to make up his mind based on the economic cases that each candidate puts forward. What's the key difference between the economic cases 50 days out from this election between Biden and Trump here? Well, just going back to China, I don't think the positions will be wildly um, mm-hmm. different. Obviously, uh, Vice President Biden will be much more centrist in a number of these issues. But let's not forget that a lot of these trade issues that we're seeing in the current administration um, fundamentally were Democratic positions, long-held Democratic positions um, uh, for, for a generation. And so, you know, I think it is going to be much more around tactics than diagnostics. I think a President Biden would work much more closely with our friends and allies to form a global consensus to deal with these issues, as opposed to having a fundamentally different uh, perspective on what these issues are. And I would think working with your allies at this point, or even it's more important than ever before. Um, Stefan, always look forward, Jason and I do, for when you stop by. So thank you so much. Um, Able to weigh in on so many different topics. Stefan Selig, Managing Partner at Bridge Park Advisors, former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade at the U.S. Department of Commerce. That was during the Obama administration. On the phone from Bridgehampton, I love when he stops by. He is smart as heck. I'm just going (laughs) to say He is smart as heck. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to cl- uh, to the close. Excuse me, just about 11 minutes left of today's trading day. Delighted to have back with us Bob Dahl. He's Chief Equity Strategist and Senior Portfolio Manager at Nuveen. Joining us on this Monday on the phone from Princeton, New Jersey. Bob, it is good to have you back with us. Um, I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Sun's out. The market's up. Who can complain? (laughs) That is so true. Well, what do you make of the market constantly? I know we had a little bit of a correction, but then, you know, it's back to the races or off to the races again. Yeah, I mean, we had two down weeks in a row, as you know, which is the first time uh, since the spring. And uh, the market's um, rebounding here. I I think we're going to churn at these high levels. I don't see it going straight back up and making new highs, nor do I think we're going to have a collapse. We've got to digest these great gains that we've had over the last uh, several months. And uh, pretty soon we'll be uh, looking at third quarter earnings, and that will tell a lot about where we're going. And so when you think about the catalyst for this market, Bob, you know, we talk all the time about the virus. We talk about trade. We talk about the election. Is there one that is preeminent here or is it just all of these pushing pushes and pulls here? Yeah, it's it's all of the above. Plus, I'd add the uh, the Fed and money. I mean, I said yeah. to somebody, "You need some money? Call the Fed. They seem to have an unlimited supply." <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's it's that that largesse of the Fed, the assurance 
assurance that they're going to be there, the very low interest rates, which brings the whole uh, Tina, there is no alternative uh, uh, item into question. And so people, you know, why should I sit in cash returning zero? Why should I buy a 10-year treasury to get not even three quarters of 1%? I'll just go buy some stocks. Uh, A lot of that's happening. Of course, the economy and earnings are helping. Bob, do we ever get out of that environment? I mean, look at how long we've been in that, right? I mean, coming yes. off the financial yes. crisis and we kept saying, okay, it's, you know, we're coming to an end of it, we're coming, and here we are. Yeah, I don't think we get out of that, you know, kind of zero anchored on the Fed uh, until we get um, a significant turn in the economy, and that's probably related to um, a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And as you pointed out, we've got some uh, you know, decent news today, nothing definitive. Of course, by the time we get a vaccine, then we have to manufacture them and we have to uh, um, vaccinate people. And some of these have two rounds. So, you know, it's not like the vaccine comes and everything's back to normal immediately. It's going to take a while. But can I ask you, just as a follow-up, I mean, coming into this pre-COVID-19, we had a tight labor market, and yet... We still had, while rates were starting to creep a little bit higher, it was still really low by historical measures. So I do wonder, you know, what does it take to see inflation take off, considering how tight things were prior to this? Well said. And uh, I think you know that uh, whether this is the core CPI or the PCE deflator, that the inflation measures are, are moving up a bit from very depressed levels. I don't know that we're going to have big inflation to worry about, but it's not going to be zero forever. And a zero Fed funds rate is assuming inflation zero. So the Fed will be back in the game at some point. They want us to believe it's kind of forever. Uh, so people don't worry, and the Fed deserves high marks. They were there first to calm the markets, and then to reduce the spreads, and uh, that, that certainly greased the skids for this amazing uh, rally we've witnessed. So we talked, Bob, about the monetary side. The fiscal side of late has been elusive, and while a lot of people chalk that up to just Washington dysfunction, you know, others look at it and, and say, well, you know, it, a lack of action may have some real economic consequences, even if it doesn't manifest before the election, into the fourth quarter and into uh, 2021. What do you make of that? Where does the fiscal side fit into the equation here? You know, because economic statistics have been uh, so good and we have rates at zero and the stock market is uh, winking and nodding and saying, oh, okay, that's caused a lot of people to say, maybe we don't even need another fiscal stimulus. So let me put it the other way around. For us, to bring that back to the front burner, we're probably going to need some bad economic numbers and or uh, difficulty in the stock market. Until then, I think it's going to be a political football that goes nowhere. All right. So what do you, what's your advice to investors at this point? So my view is if you've been enjoyed this rally and had your money fully in the stock market, Taking a couple of pennies off the table is not the worst thing in the world. Sadly, more people are in the other position. They've got a lot of cash. I, I, I sold out. Pick your date. And, uh, you know, what should I do? Well, you know, you've got to have some money in because uh, we're, in a, we're in an economic recovery. We, as we just talked about, low inflation, low interest rates. The path of least resistance 
continues to be the upside. So find some good growth. Find some good value. It's, it's not, no longer an either or. It's a both end. Find some cyclicals. Find some defensive stocks. You got to own some in your portfolio. Hey, I do wonder, Bob, because Jason and I have talked a lot over the last week or so. And we kind of kidded because um, there's a lot of traffic at the Holland Tunnel this morning. And I, I was anticipating, it just mm-hmm. was like everybody trying to get back to Wall Street, it felt like. And certainly when you saw the deal flow, you feel like everybody's been pretty busy. Is there pressure? And I do wonder, you know, for the financial community, are you guys seeing it to get people back to work? Does Do people want to be kind of back in their offices? It's very mixed, as you can imagine. There are okay. some companies and some employees who say, let's go back to work. And some others are saying, no, not so fast. But it's not uniform. You go back a few months and everybody was content to stay home. Uh, I think we're seeing the, the pressure, the slow pressure to open up here and open up there. And so the Holland Tunnel is going to get more backed up. All right. Well, the Holland Tunnel, that is uh, good news and bad news, depending on uh, who you're talking to, depending on whether Carol needs to uh, get into the city and out. Uh, Bob Dahl, thank you so much. Chief Equity Strategist, Senior Portfolio Manager for Nuveen, a voice and a name well-known to our listeners and Bloomberg clients everywhere. He joined us on the phone from Princeton, New Jersey. Carol? Yeah, really great to uh, get him to weigh in because, yeah, he is certainly a familiar voice to our our audience and and just someone who has seen a lot of different market environments. I am curious to see what happens when we get on the other side of this. You know, do we have a lot of hiring? Do we go back to a tight labor market? There seems to be, at this point, anticipation there will be a fair amount of slack. And I just, I wonder how quickly it can bounce back. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.